What do you think? Uh, have you ever heard a song from a genealogy before? Well, we hope you like that. And uh, it just reminds us again, Christmas is coming. And together for the next uh, few weeks, we are going to be studying uh, the Christmas story from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1 and 2. And as we do that, we're going to be talking about how, how Christmas just turns everything upside down. Matthew's account of Christmas particularly shows us that, as you're going to see. And today I want to begin uh, by showing you how Matthew's genealogy of Jesus really does turn all of our categories upside down. I want to encourage you, if you would, to open your Bibles right now uh, to the Gospel of Matthew, the very first page in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to be reading there in just a moment. And uh, while you're getting there, I just have to ask this question. Uh, did anybody have any weird family members show up for Thanksgiving at your house? Anybody expecting some weird family members to come to your house for Christmas? Well, that's good. Anybody have weird family members that are here right now and you don't want to raise your hand? Well, Matthew shows us in his genealogy that Jesus had some very weird, very strange family members. He had a very strange Christmas family tree. And before we read this genealogy, I want you to look at your, this page that you have open uh, in your Bible, on your device, and I want you to just think about this. If you didn't know anything about Jesus, if you want to learn about this man who impacted world history more than any other, whose birth we all recognize every time we consult a calendar, this, this man who has more than two billion followers... If you want to start his story right from the beginning, think about this. This is where you'd start. You would open the New Testament to page one. The first thing you would see is this long list of odd names. Names like Hezron and Aminadab. Some dude named Salmon. Like they named him after a fish? That's weird. Names like Jehoshaphat. Uzziah, Zerubbabel. I mean, who are these people and who really cares, right? Is that what you're thinking? Uh, you you want to say, Matthew, Matthew, where was your head? What were you thinking about? This is not, not a good way to draw people into this story. And yet, this is exactly how Matthew begins his story of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't an accident and it wasn't a bad decision we believe that God's Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to do precisely this, and that means we need to ask this question, why? You know, Matthew is the only gospel writer to do this. We have four accounts of Jesus' life, and one intriguing fact at Christmas is two of those accounts don't say anything at all about Jesus' birth. Mark and John, they start with John the Baptist's ministry, uh, 30 years after Jesus was born. And only Matthew and Luke talk about Jesus' birth. And, and Luke, well, he launches his gospel with this really intriguing story about how angels show up. They show up and announce the birth of two boys, one to this really old childless couple who'd given up on ever having a family, another to a 14-year-old virgin teenager who's informed by the angel that her child is going to be the son of God. So Luke begins with a story, and it's a good one. But that means three of the four Gospels start with a story. But Matthew, he starts with a genealogy. Why? 
Well, to see what he was up to, we need to go back in time thousands of years, and we need to listen to how Matthew begins uh, and, and think about what he's doing, because he's eventually going to get to Christmas. But this is where he starts. Matthew 1, verse 1, it says, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliad, Eliad, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathon, Mathon, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. These, thus, there were 14 generations in all. From Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. And so you're in church now, so you have to be honest. How many of you zoned out just a little bit while I was reading that? Thank you for your honesty. How many of you, I have another honesty test here. How many of you, when you come to a section like this, you know like you're reading through the Bible, you come to one of these things... And, you know, you just either skim over it or you just skip it completely. Would you be willing to raise your hand if that's what you do? And you call yourselves Christians. <laughs> Fully devoted followers, whatever. <laughs> well, this is how we respond, I mean, to something like this. And we just have to ask this question. Why? Why, why does Matthew begin his gospel with a genealogy? Well, there's two reasons that we can point out. First of all, to persuade his audience. His audience is Jewish, and his claim is that Jesus is Messiah. And the first question any Jewish audience would ask is, is this, is Jesus related to David? See, God promised that Messiah would come and would be a son of David, and Matthew answers that big question first. But, but he has a second reason to begin with the genealogy, I and mean, you must not miss this. He does it secondly to introduce his message. Now, you're going to see this morning that Matthew's genealogy is full of truths about Jesus that Matthew is going to be unfolding all through this gospel. And Matthew intentionally does some very unusual things in this genealogy. 
The first thing that we can notice is that he actually includes women. Now, that may not strike us as strange, but in ancient cultures, genealogies ran through fathers, and Matthew's point was that Jesus was related to David through his father, so why include women? And in addition, Matthew emphasizes some women who most of us honestly would leave out if we were constructing a genealogy of the Son of God. He includes some women of, well, questionable character. And so, you know, if his point is actually to convince people that Jesus is God's very own Son, well, he's doing some really odd things that could cause us to question Jesus' ancestry. And this is a fascinating thing because in addition to all I've just said, back in this day, histories were written to make powerful men look good. That was the point. Histories were only written by hired historians, and you had to have a lot of money to hire someone to do something like this. And so it was usually kings, maybe generals, who would hire a historian to write. And so if you're getting paid to do this, your job is to make the person who pays you look good. Make sense? And so, you know, if you're a king or a general and you win some military victories, but then you lose some other battles, well, you talk about the victories and you kind of gloss over the defeats. You have some kids. They turn out good, some of them. Others don't. You talk about the kid that turned out good. You just don't talk much about that other kid, right? This is just how it would work. But we come to Matthew's genealogy, and we see that Matthew just goes out of his way, it seems, to highlight and make us question some of the people in Jesus' family tree. In fact, he highlights people he didn't even need to mention. Look at the first part of this genealogy again. This is verses 1 through 6. We're going to focus our time. And in these six verses, Matthew mentions four women. He mentions four women, and three of the four aren't even Jewish. I mean, why would he go out of his way, he's writing to Jewish people, to say that Jesus doesn't even have a pure Jewish bloodline? I mean, this cannot help him convince his Jewish readers that Jesus is the Messiah. I want you to pick it up again at verse 3 and notice a few things. I've kind of highlighted some things to emphasize them. I hope you see how they they stand out in the flow of this. In verse 3, it says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. First woman woman he mentions. And I'll be coming back here. But but just know now, if you don't know this story, this is a very R-rated, kind of creepy story. There is really no need to mention Tamar. Just stick with the men, Matthew. Just stick with the storyline. I mean, why Tamar? Look at verse 5. It tells us in verse 5 about, uh, about Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. So Matthew throws in another woman, and she's not Jewish either. And on top of that, she has a real shady past. You remember what her occupation was? You know, she was a prostitute. And, and you know, some of us have a grandparent or two with a history, right? But if you notice, you don't typically bring that history up at Thanksgiving dinner. Hey, Grandpa, pass the gravy, please. And while you're passing the gravy, could you tell us that story again about how you met Grandma when she was hooking? You know, you, you, you just don't talk about stuff like that, right? 
Just kind of leave that stuff alone. So Matthew, what, what, are you, what are you doing bringing this up? And we're still in verse 5. It says, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now, Ruth is a good story. But again, Ruth wasn't Jewish. Ruth was from Moab. And if you know your Old Testament, you may know that the Moabites were sworn enemies of God's people. They were the bad guys. I mean, no one liked the Moabites 2,000, 3,000 years ago being a Moabite. It was sort of like being a Raiders fan. Not a good thing. Not good. So Ruth's story was nice, but it's kind of distracting. And you find yourself thinking, Matthew, like you're, you're trying to convince Jewish people that Jesus is God's son, David's son. Why all these off-ramps? Why all this sideways energy? And then he says, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And it's like, okay, now we finally arrive where we need to be. Why not stop there? But no, he writes, David was the father of Solomon. And look how he writes this, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Say, Matthew, Matthew, why don't you just write, David was the father of Solomon, and Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and just kind of skip over this. Why throw this in? And he doesn't even say this woman's name, but everybody knows who she is. I mean, you know who she is, right? I mean, who was Solomon's mother? Shout it out. Everybody knows who Bathsheba was, and you don't even have to be a church person to know this name, but Matthew doesn't say whose mother was Bathsheba. He makes it worse, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. You see what he's doing? And Jewish readers are going, this is so uncomfortable. Matthew, why do you have to bring that up? I mean, we want to think about the good parts of King David's life. We want to focus on his victories. Not that, because the the big, ugly scar in David's life was when he abused his power to have sex with one of his friend's wives, one of his best friends. And then he sets that best friend Uriah up to die in battle in order to cover his sin, in order to steal his wife. It was the worst moment in David's life. And so Matthew hasn't even started the main story yet, hasn't even gotten to Jesus. And it's like he's just like uh, going out of his way to create all this distraction. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. I mean, it's like just twist the knife, won't you, Matthew? Why can't we just stick with the men's names? And there's another thing. Not only does he throw in these names... But there were some other women he could have mentioned if he wanted to bring women into the story. He doesn't mention Sarah, Abraham's wife. He doesn't mention Rebecca. He doesn't mention some other wonderful women who did incredible things. He just throws in Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Solomon's mother, who had been Uriah's wife. Why does he do that? Well, here's why. Matthew spent three years with Jesus. He heard Jesus teach. He watched Jesus die on a cross. He witnessed Jesus' resurrection from the dead, leaving behind an empty tomb. Matthew knew all these shady characters, all their baggage, all their sin, all their shame. Matthew knew that they were the point of the story he was trying to tell. Matthew knew 
that sin was the reason that Jesus came. And he wanted everyone to understand this so clearly that Jesus didn't just come for sinners. Jesus, Matthew wanted the world to know, came from sinners. And that was okay because that was the point. Matthew knew firsthand that Jesus' story really was a story about light coming into darkness, about life invading this world of death, about grace breaking down the walls set up by the law. And the other thing that Matthew knew, and maybe this is what motivated him to add all of these seedy characters into his genealogy, for Matthew, this was also his story. Think about it. People like Judah and Tamar and Rahab were his people, his friends. I mean, do you remember? Matthew was a tax collector. Nobody likes tax collectors. And in addition to that, Matthew, as a tax collector in the culture of his day, by definition, was a traitor to his own people. He was a cheater. He was a liar. He was a thief. He used his job to take money that he didn't even have to have from his own people. And maybe as Matthew started, thought about his own story, he realized that in the story that he was about to write, including sinners in his genealogy, wasn't a distraction. It was the point. It was the point. Just maybe, maybe Matthew understood better than any other gospel writers that Christmas is a story about God drawing near to those who were far away. See, Matthew's genealogy teaches us in some incredible ways that Jesus didn't come for the good people. Jesus didn't come for the people who assume they have it all together. Jesus came for people who know they have no hope, who know they can't get it all together, who know they can never make it on their own. Matthew, he wanted to highlight these problems in the genealogy because not only were those people in Jesus' lineage, and that was just truth, but they were why Jesus came in the first place. They were the reason that Jesus was born. Do you remember in Luke's story, the more familiar Christmas story, when the angels came and they announced the birth of Jesus, they announced the birth of a Savior. So here's the question. A Savior from what? Well, the Bible's answer is a Savior from sin. You see, that's the point. God sent a savior. And so the genealogy is really the perfect launch for the Christmas story because it highlights the world's need for a savior. I want to pause right here for a moment and ask a question. Is there anyone here, anyone here at all who kind of thinks that God could never really love them? Maybe you have a lot of sexual sin in your life. Maybe you're an adulterer in your past. Maybe you struggle with a sexual addiction. It's possible that someone here has even prostituted themselves. You, you sold your body. Maybe that's your past. Do you realize that Jesus had great, 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 great grandparents just like you? Any thieves in the room? Any liars? Any cheaters? 
Anyone here who's committed sin you're so ashamed of, you just think, I could never be really, truly clean ever again. You just can't imagine it. You need to look again at the people on this list. The message of Matthew's genealogy is that Jesus came to save sinners. And Matthew is telling us right at the start, this is what Christmas is all about. See, Christmas is not about us being good enough. It is not about us cleaning up our act so that God will accept and love us. Christmas is about sinners who need salvation and a loving father who sends his son so that this world can receive that salvation so that sinners can be saved. And that's what Matthew wants his readers to hear. That's what he wants them to see. That's why he goes out of his way to highlight, italicize, and bold all of these kind of crazy, colorful, R-rated, sometimes creepy characters. These people in Jesus' lineage. Now, in the first six verses, there are four uh, stories that are highlighted. And each one of these stories really kind of surprises us. And they can teach us. And and they're really all about grace. And and the truth is, we we could spend like a whole month here, but that's not what we're going to do. I want to briefly mention the surprises in three of those stories. And then we're going to dive deeper into one of the stories, which I think is probably the one we know the least about, the one we're the most unfamiliar with. And the way we're going to do this is start at the end and work our way back. We're going to start at the one that's closest to us in history and then back up in time. And so that means we're going to start with David's story. And David's story teaches us that God's grace is greater than my worst sin. See, if God had ever written anybody off, don't you think it might have been David? Again, David abused one of his best friend's wives for his sexual pleasure. He then had that friend murdered to cover up his sin. And yet, God forgave him. God restored him. God redeemed his life. God made David one of Messiah's ancestors. Is there anyone here today who needs to be surprised by this truth? Ruth's story is second, and Ruth's story teaches us that God's grace is greater than my status in society. Ruth was a poor widow. Ruth was a refugee. Ruth was a member of a despised ethnic group, and yet God showed her favor. God invited her into his family. And some of you are here today, I'm quite confident, even though most of us may not have any idea, but you are convinced that you have no value. You are convinced that you're really not of any worth or significance. And I want to tell you today that Ruth's story tells you you're wrong. God's grace is greater than your status in society. This genealogy highlights that. The third story is Rahab's, and Rahab's story teaches us that God's grace is greater than my labels. Anybody have a label in your life? Maybe you've applied it to yourself. Maybe someone else has applied it to you. And that has become your identity. You've accepted it. And sometimes those labels are not good. Sometimes those labels are very negative. You know, through history, there are some people that we, we come to know by their labels. I, I, I want you to help me with this. You can remember some of these. In the Bible, for example, there is a guy named John the... Baptist, so that's his label, John the Baptist. You go into world history, you have Alexander the Great, you have Attila the, you have Conan the 
You have Buffy the... All his figures of great historical significance, right, you know? Rahab also has a label. She is Rahab the harlot or prostitute. And Rahab could have lived her entire life with that label. But again, God's grace met her and saved her and redeemed her and made her part of his family and made her part of the genealogy of his son. Have others labeled you? Have you labeled yourself? Do you today need to let God's grace surprise you? His grace is greater than any label. That brings us to our fourth and our our final story, and it's the one we're going to kind of dive into more deeply with the rest of our time. We're going to take a look at this story. It's probably one that most of us haven't looked at in a long time, and maybe for some of us we've, we've never encountered it. And I want to go back to Matthew 1, verse 1, to pick this story up and kind of set it in context. Again, Matthew writes, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew connects Jesus uh, to David and Abraham up front. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Now, right here, Matthew's Jewish readers would have paused. Because he reminds them of something that we might miss if we're not familiar with the Old Testament. And really, this is Matthew's first surprise in his genealogy. He says Judah and his brothers. Now, Judah had 11 brothers, and only one of these brothers is really well known, and that's Joseph. Uh, Probably you've heard the story of Joseph and his coat of many colors, Some of you have seen a musical, right? I mean, you don't even have to be a church person to maybe know some things about Joseph. But Matthew doesn't mention Joseph. Matthew mentions Judah. We don't know much about Judah. Why does Matthew highlight Judah? And it gets even more interesting if you compare their stories because anybody who compares Judah's story with Joseph's story would guess if God's going to choose one of these men to be the the son through whom he brings his son ultimately into the world, it would hands down be Joseph, not Judah. Everything about Joseph's story is remarkable. He's this man of incredible character. He goes through a horrible injustice. And yet he endures, and yet he triumphs, and at the end of his story, he becomes a savior. He saves his family. He saves an entire nation. It's like he he would be the perfect picture of Jesus, the savior. He seems like the perfect ancestor of Jesus. So many parallels between their lives. But God doesn't pick Joseph. God picks Judah. Why? Because that's the point of the gospel. That's the point of this whole story Matthew was telling. Now, Judah's story actually kind of begins in Genesis 37, and and Judah's story is told essentially as a footnote to the larger story of his famous younger brother, Joseph, which encompasses chapters 37 through 50. Judah's story actually primarily is in chapter 38, but I want to kind of show you how this story begins in Genesis 37. If you look at verses 23 to 28, uh, we know the background. Judah and his brothers are jealous of Joseph because Joseph's the favorite son. Joseph's the one who received the beautiful coat of many colors from his father. Nobody 
nobody else did. And one day, Jacob sends Joseph to find his brothers. He goes out into the fields, miles from home, and he's looking for them. Judah is with those brothers when Joseph comes. Verse 23 says, So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, and you go, huh? What? Yeah, they they throw their brother into an empty pit, and then they stop to have lunch. Can you say (laughs) cold-blooded? It says next, as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Now here's where we meet Judah. Verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? So hey, guys, I've been thinking, as they all munch their lunch, I've been thinking, why don't we just make some money from this? Judah apparently was the leader of these brothers. Verse 27, he says, Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother. (laughs) Now, what a sweet thought. He is our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. And so you go, oh, these are great brothers, right? We won't kill brother. Let's just sell him into slavery. So we meet Judah. Say hello to Judah, from whom our Savior eventually comes. He's not a murderer. He's just willing to sell his brother into slavery to make some money. Joseph, he he trudges off to Egypt in chains. Judah thinks he'll never see him again as he divides up the bronze and copper coins among ten brothers. Now, Joseph at this point is probably just a teenager, and, and so these 11 brothers just compound this by next taking that beautiful coat, tearing it up some, and then dipping it in animal blood. They do the unthinkable. They go home to their father, and they say to their father, Look, Dad, we found this. An animal must have killed your son, Joseph. We couldn't even find his body. Must have been eaten up by the animal. It's horrible. It's just so awful. It's hard to contemplate. They break their father's heart, and they decide to live with the secret. They decide to take it to the grave. And just think about this, as the months and then the years roll on, the money is gone, but the memory is not, the guilt is not. They are going to live their lives, the rest of their lives, knowing that they sold their brother into slavery. And this means for 20 years, every time they gather with their father to eat a meal, there's an empty chair at the table. Every year when Joseph's birthday comes around, their father mourns, and Judah knows, and he never cracks. He never breaks never confesses. He knows he's responsible because he was the leader. Now, as I said, Joseph's story is found in Genesis 37 to 50, and it's, it's very interesting to think that only two of the brothers really have a story, and Joseph's is actually the longest story in the Old Testament about one person. Judah's story is kind of stuck in the middle, and he only gets one chapter, but in that one chapter, Genesis 38, we get a picture of who Judah was, the kind of person he was. Here's what happens. 
Uh, Joseph is gone, and Judah goes on with his life. He's a shepherd. He gets married. He has a bunch of kids. Uh, the first three are boys. And you look at Genesis 38, 6 through 10, and I just have to warn you, if you have a kid here, it uh, might be a good time to take them to kids' ministry or just go to the bathroom something. Because here's the story. Judah's first son marries a woman named Tamar, and that son dies before they have any kids. And we don't know why, but we're told that this son was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Must have been bad. In those days, you may know the custom, a brother was responsible to marry his deceased brother's wife and give her children. And so brother number two, well, he doesn't want to have any children by Tamar. So whenever they come together, he made sure that he, he didn't quite seal the deal. Uh, the King James Version puts it delicately. He spilled it on the ground so that he wouldn't give seed to his brother. And then we're told this second son was also wicked in the Lord's sight, so God put him to death too. Now again, the custom is going to continue. This means now that Judah is responsible to care for Tamar, and he tells her, I will take care of you. I do have another son. You can marry him, but he's too young now. So you're going to have to wait a while. But you can well imagine Judah's afraid to lose his third son. He's already lost two sons, and Tamar's been married to them. And so he stalls, and he stalls, and he, he does this for years until it becomes clear that he never really intends to take care of Tamar. So she takes matters into her own hands. She disguises herself as a prostitute. She covers her face with a veil. She goes and she sits at a place that she knows Judah will pass by. And this tells you something about what she knows about her father-in-law because Judah comes by and he responds. He doesn't recognize her, which tells you how little he pays attention to this daughter-in-law he's supposed to be caring for, this daughter-in-law he's supposed to be marrying to his younger son. He goes and he hires this prostitute. She asks for a goat for payment, which I guess was the going rate for that sort of thing 3,000 years ago. I don't know. Um, but he doesn't have the goat with him. And so he says, I'll send you the goat. And she says, I need some collateral. She says, as a pledge, I want two things. I want your seal and I want your cord uh, with its staff. It's sort of like your driver's license, your passport. This is I, your identity. And he agrees. They have sex. They each go home. And he tells a servant, look, I, I owe this temple prostitute a goat. Um, don't want to talk about it. Just, just take her the goat. It's not very Christmassy, is it? I mean, but this is what Matthew's writing. This is what he's talking about. The servant takes the goat. He travels. He gets there. But he can't find a prostitute anywhere. He asks around, and no one knows. No one knows about a prostitute that works at that place. And the servant returns to, to Judah. And, well, this is kind of embarrassing, Judah doesn't want to create a big scene, so he decides to just drop it. And that gets us to Genesis 38, verses 24 to 26. About three months later, someone comes running to Judah's house. Judah, Judah, you won't believe this. Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, she has played the harlot. She's pregnant. And then Judah does something that every person does who has a secret and who is hiding that secret who is pretending to be something they're not. Judah gets real self-righteous. I want to ask you a question. 
You ever met someone who was just really self-righteous? A year later or so, all of a sudden, everyone found out they had a secret. Ever met someone who just kind of hammers and hammers and hammers away at a particular issue, and later on you discover that they secretly struggle with that issue that they're condemning others over? Do you understand that's human nature? Do you know that if you are an unbroken person, and if you have a secret, if you have a point of shame, and no one knows but you, it often manifests itself in self-righteousness. Some of the most self-righteous people that I've ever met, I'll be honest with you, are the people I trust the least because I have come to understand they're probably hiding a secret. There's probably something going on that I don't know about. And so Judah's angry. He says, she has shamed my family. Burn her alive. And as we're reading this story, we all want to say, time out, Judah. Okay, aren't you the guy, Judah, who sold his own brother into slavery? Aren't you the guy who broke his father's heart and you've been doing that for 20 years? Aren't you carrying that secret to your grave, Judah? And, and oh, by the way, Judah, didn't you break your promise to Tamar, who you now want to burn alive? Well, the day comes, and they're going to burn her alive, but Tamar has something that belongs to Judah. And the story is kind of funny in an odd way. She sends a messenger to Judah, and this messenger has a staff in one hand and a cord and a seal in the other. Um, and here's what he says. Hey, hey Judah, Tamar uh, wanted me to give you a message. I, I'm not sure I understand, but she says, I am with child by the man to whom these belong. I don't know what he's talking about, Judah. Do you know what he's talk she's talking about? And Judah's like, okay, no fire today. Put away the matches. Let's just move on. Bad idea. And to his credit, at this point, Judah goes to see Tamar. He falls down on his knees and he says to her, Tamar, you are more righteous than I am because I did not do what I said I would do. And verse 27 says that Tamar gives birth to a little boy and his name is Perez and he is in the genealogy of Jesus the Christ. And I have to wonder, what was it like around the Thanksgiving table that year? And by the way, are, are any of you feeling like a lot better about your family right now? <laughs> and for you parents who chose not to take your kids to kids' ministry, Merry Christmas. <laughs> it's my gift to you, you know. <laughs> See, this is messy stuff, right? I mean, we're, we're thinking, Matthew, you should have skipped over that. I mean, daughter-in-law, father-in-law, ugh. Why didn't you just leave that out? Now... We have a kid in Jesus' line who should have never been born. It messes up the whole thing. I mean, you left some names out, Matthew. Why did you have to include this one? And Matthew does mention Tamar by name. And it is the kind of thing that you would expect to hide and bury and hope no one ever discovers. Unless it was the point. The point of the story. 
Now, this story is not over for Judah because about 20 years after he sold Joseph into slavery, thinking he'll never see him again, there's a famine in the land. And this is a part of the story that you may remember from Sunday school. In Genesis 42, uh, Jacob calls his sons together and says, you got to go to Egypt to buy grain because they knew that was the only place there was food. And they go, and when they get there, guess who they find is in charge of the grain? Joseph. Joseph, their brother, is now the prime minister of Egypt. He's gone from being a slave all the way up to being what really was one of the most powerful men in the entire world at that time. It's an incredible story. Now, they don't recognize Joseph. They don't expect to see him ever again. The last time they saw him, he was a teenager. Now, he's an Egyptian ruler. And he dresses like an Egyptian. And he talks like an Egyptian. And yes... He walks like an Egyptian. (laughs) You're welcome. But Joseph recognizes them. He he begins to, if you read the story, he kind of messes with them. And and you can feel like he's kind of playing with them, maybe taunting them some. And, and, And what we learn really at the end of the story as we think about it is he is trying to find out, have they changed? Are they the same people they were 20 years ago? Are they different now? And as he goes through this, you may remember Joseph is so overwhelmed uh, with emotion at times. He runs out of the room where he breaks down and he weeps. And then he comes back, he powers up again, and it just goes on and on and on. And they have no idea why this is happening. Why is this prime minister taking so much interest in them? And they go back to their father and they say, something weird's going on. The prime minister wants us to bring Benjamin to Egypt. And Jacob says, no, you can't do that. Last time I sent a son away, it didn't turn out well. But eventually, they have to go because they have to eat. And they find themselves in Genesis 45. It all culminates here. They're all in a room, all 11 brothers. Joseph sends all of the Egyptians out of the room, and he says to them, verse 3, I am Joseph. And it's one of the most dramatic scenes in all of literature. I am Joseph, your brother. And there... On his face with his other ten brothers is Judah, prostrate before this ruler. And Judah has to be thinking in that moment on his face before his brother that he sold into slavery, what would I do if the roles were reversed? What would I do to the man who sold me into slavery and now I have the power of life and death over him? Judah knows what he would do. He had never broken, never confessed, never allowed the others to tell the truth about what they did to Joseph. Judah knew the selfishness that had driven his entire life. And now he's on his face before the man with power over life and death. And Joseph says to them, get up. I forgive you. In fact, I'm going to take care of your families. I'm going to take care of your herds. Go and get my father and bring him to me. Later on, in an incredible statement of faith, Joseph says, God used your evil to put me here. And here's what Joseph says, and it is so very powerful. Joseph says, it was to save lives that God sent me on ahead of you. Joseph trusted in God's sovereign providence in his life, even while suffering incredible evil. Joseph is a picture of a Savior. 
And think about it. God looks down and God says, I think I'll skip the Savior and I'll go with the liar. I'll go with the thief. I'll go with the immoral man. I'll bring my son into the world through Judah, not Joseph. See, Matthew is just underscoring this little snippet of history in his geology. And the reason is this. On that day, on his face, Judah was a picture of you and me. And that's the point. That's why Jesus came. Judah was the picture of a person who deserved one thing, but he got something else. He was a picture of a person who learned God's grace is available for me even when I've moved far away from God. Think about this. Judah never broke, never repented, never confessed. But then suddenly in a moment, God gave Judah what he did not deserve. God skips Joseph the righteous. God chooses Judah the unrighteous to bring his son into the world. And that's remarkable, isn't it? But do you see, as I've been saying, that's the point of the whole Christmas story. It's the point of Jesus' story. It's the story of grace, God's gift of unmerited favor that he offers to anyone who will receive it. So think about this. How does Matthew begin the Christmas story? What he's really saying is this. Before we get to the Jesus part, readers, I want to remind you, I want you to see this is how it's always been. God has always chosen the broken people, the messed up people, the people with a past, the people with secrets. That's who God chooses. And it's always been true at any point in their lives. When they recognized it, they had access to God. And that access was not based on anything they had done. It was always based on what God had done. And then in the New Testament, in the story I'm about to tell you, we're going to see what God would do. It was based on what God is going to do for them in Jesus, the Messiah I'm about to tell you about. Isn't that amazing? Do you see this morning that that is your story and that is my story and that this is the point of Christmas? That God came into this world in the person of his son to offer grace to people who didn't deserve it. That God's grace is available to anyone who will receive it even if they've never, ever before made themselves available to God. Do you know what I've discovered when we stop trying to make ourselves good enough for God and we simply receive God's grace, that's when we find peace with God. Is there anybody here right now and you just need to stop? Stop trying to earn it. Stop trying to make it on their own, your own. Just surrender. Just give up. Just receive God's grace. See, that's when we find what we're looking for. That's when we find forgiveness to deal with our past, to deal with our shame, to deal with our secrets. See, I'm pretty convinced that some of you came today just to hear this, that Judah's story teaches us that God's grace is greater than my secrets. Do you have a secret? Did you marry him with a secret? Did you marry her with a secret? Maybe that secret's gnawing at you right now. Maybe you're, you're someone who says, I don't, I, don't think, 
I could ever have peace with God because of what I've done. I mean, it's just too terrible. And I've been trying. I've tried for years to pay it back and to make it up. I mean, I just can't seem to get it right. I just can't seem to forgive myself. I mean, if that's you, I have great news this morning, friends. It's Christmas. And God has sent his son into this world. God has drawn near to you even though you have pulled away from him. His grace is available to you. Your life can change today can change. And it won't change by you cleaning up your act. It will only change just like it did that day over 3,000 years ago when Judah looked up at his brother and Judah received exactly what he did not deserve. That's how grace always begins. And today, God says to those of you with a past, those of you with shame, those of you with secrets, those of you with things that you plan to take with you to your grave, God says to you, I'm inviting you today. I'm inviting you today to accept what I've done for you in my son, to accept my grace. I sent my son Jesus and he lived a perfect life and he died on a cross for the sins of the world and I raised him again from the dead and he is alive today reigning at my right hand and you, my friend, can be forgiven if you repent of your sins, if you believe in my son. That's all. Just receive the free gift of salvation because that's the point. That's why I sent my son into this world to save you. And so Judah becomes the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. Here's something amazing to think about. Years after this would go by, Jacob, the father, is about to die, and he calls each of the 12 sons in to give them a blessing. This is at the end of the book of Genesis. You can read this in Genesis 49, what he says to Judah And you need to remember, this is hundreds of years before there was ever a kingdom of Israel, hundreds of years before there was ever a David, a thousand and plus years before Jesus ever showed up. Jacob puts his hands on his son Judah, Judah the deceiver, Judah who had broken his heart for 20 years. And Jacob says, Judah, Through you and through your descendants, a king will come and your brothers and their families will bow down to him. And centuries later, a little boy named David was born who became a king. And eventually, a son came whose name was Jesus who would become the Messiah. See, it's not a new message. It's an old message. No one has access to the Father through their own goodness. Access to the Father, has always been through his grace and his mercy. And I hope you see by now that is what Christmas is inviting each of us to. You see, Christmas is about a Savior. And Jesus came to save sinners. And that means no matter what we've done, no matter how long we've done it, no matter how many people we've hurt, Christmas is for sinners who will repent and receive grace. Will you know Christmas today? Never forget that Christmas is about a Savior, and his name is Jesus, and he came to save sinners because he came from sinners. It's in his family tree. 
Sinners like Judah, sinners like Tamar, sinners like Rahab and Ruth and David and Bathsheba, sinners like Matthew, sinners like me, sinners like you. That's why he came. We're the point of this story. This is God's word to us. Would you bow your heads as we pray?